2: Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
1: And now for traffic, we take you to Wee Ray in the Channel 5 Sky Skiff.
0: Hey Jim, we're pretty clear of sandstorms across much of the Dune Sea this morning, so that's great news for Skyhopper and Landspeeder traffic so far. However, we're already seeing a bit of pre Boonta Eve Classic traffic heading into Moss Aspa. Plus, things are grinding to a halt out near the Great Pit of Carcoon, and the Womp Rats are playing as it looks like the huts are hosting another multi skiff Sarlacc offering.
1: Always best to steer clear unless you've got an invite. Especially if you've got an invite. <laughs> All too true, Ray. Now let's check in with Merge Surgedon for a look at this week's solar activity. Looks like we're in for a double helping of solar flares.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And
0: I'm Joe McCormick, and here we are, finally here in a galaxy far, far away. I I did not think we would end up doing Star Wars content, especially so close to May 4th, but not
1: on it. Uh, Things are getting strange. (laughs) Yeah, now, fittingly, we're recording this episode on May the 4th, Uh uh, but that that just benefits uh, the two of us. Uh, The listeners are going to get it a little later. However, since the May the 4th, like, sales begin before may the 4th uh i I think it's okay to assume that may the 4th is just generally a a you know a multi-day even multi-week affair in which we celebrate star wars
0: yeah it's like christmas it gradually creeps out to the edges
1: yeah the 30 days of may the
0: 4th or what (laughs) have you (laughs) uh now so you've been going on a star wars expedition in your house right
1: yeah yeah um we've been watching all the all the movies. Uh, we also watched the Mandalorian. Uh, I think at this point we've watched everything except the most recent one and we're going to catch that one tonight because it just dropped on uh, on Disney Plus. Oh, okay. uh, but yeah, we've been we've been full full blown into the Star Wars um and uh, it's been it's been pretty fun because uh, I, I've I think I've been personally been like several different stereotypical Star Wars fans over the years. Uh, I was born in 78, so the original trilogy and their associated toys were just a key part of my childhood. And uh, and just as aspects of their structure were, were based on, uh, you know, archetypes of comparative mythology, you know, these films introduced many of us to some of these mythic energies so i remember loving these films as a child i remember lapsing somewhat during what i think of as like the star wars dark age of the early and mid 90s (laughs) i think that's when i was getting like the star wars insider fan magazine oh cool yeah it had kind of gone uh underground i mean i don't want to say underground because obviously there was there was still tons of content coming out and the you know ex- the, the expanded universe and and so forth there were books there were comics there were there were games but it it wasn't as as prevalent uh in the pop culture at that time uh, but of course it was gearing up because then came uh the uh, the, the prequels right um hmm. Uh, I, no, I, I, too, remember reading some of the extended universe stuff and getting into that in the uh, like the late 90s. Uh, but then we had 1999's Phantom Menace. And I remember being, first of all, like super excited for it. And then I was a bit of a prequel apologist there for a bit regarding the Phantom Menace. And then I became kind of a snarky fan who focused only on the flaws of the prequel films. And I'd say I didn't fully recover from that until I watched The Mandalorian, with uh, my family, uh, and we all loved it, and then we started watching all the films again, and and now I'm I'm leaning into the force. I'm uh, I'm I'm just saying I'm I'm enjoying all of them. I've enjoyed uh, each film uh, that I've watched, and and really kind of tried to watch them, you know, with my son, but also kind of through his eyes, and uh, yeah, it's been a blast. What are his favorites? He tells me that his favorites are the Phantom Menace. And, re- let's see, yeah, Phantom Menace and Return of the Jedi, but especially huh. Phantom Menace. Uh, he, in fact, requested that we watch that one again, and so we watched half of it last night. Those, it, it it, does not escape my attention that those are the two that have the highest quotient of cuteness content. They do, they have, they have cuteness, but then also they just have a ton of creatures, and I think that's also key. Because, like, mm. the Phantom Menace... Most of it takes place on like a dinosaur ridden, uh, you know, uh, planet where there's just, you know, monster after monster after monster. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, you have the comic elements as well. And, and you have an actual child in it, uh, which I think also is adds this kind of anchor for younger viewers though going against what I was just
0: saying about the cuteness, obviously return of the Jedi is where we get the, the Ewoks, the classic teddy bear planet. But the, the first half of return of the Jedi, I was just when we w- rewatched it not too long ago, I was like, man, I loved this when, when I was a kid, but the first half of this movie is gross. It is full of like, <laughs> just like, like nasty, slimy critters everywhere and, and, and horrible monsters. And, uh, and, I would say, actually, the thing maybe that stands out the most in my mind is going to be the subject of today's episode,
1: which is the Sarlacc. Yes, yes, the Sarlacc it you know features heavily into this portion of the film, and uh, it is it's just something that just captures uh it certainly captures the young imagination you know here's this pit here is this thing, and i think it it also played well with the action figures growing up because you could you could pretty much make a Sarlacc. there wasn't i don't think there was a Sarlacc um you know, like action playset or anything because oh how wrong you are oh really they had one because I was just thinking you just had you had dirt you had holes you had uh Things you could do with like a bedspread and you had instant Sarlacc. Robert I want you to scroll all the way down to the bottom of our
0: notes and have a look at the images I have attached for you. I thought these would fill you with joy. This comes from a board game that I found evidence of on the internet late last night, I think. Uh, it's called Battle at Sarlacc's Pit. It was released huh. at the same time as the movie or sometime around the movie I guess to help promote it and it is a it is a board game with a Sarlac like a cardboard Sarlacc cone setup, and then it's Got a little barge or skiff on top where it looks like you 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 play with miniatures of uh, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, Chewbacca, and I guess maybe that's also it's supposed to be Leia. It's kind of hard to tell. The miniatures are not super detailed, and you have to fight your way through these uh, you know green pig face guards and Boba Fett to to uh, confront Jabba the Hutt. And I guess if you lose, you
1: fall off into the Sarlacc's mouth. Ha! Well, that it looks. Uh, beautiful. I mean, especially the cover art on this box looks uh-huh. incredible, and then the set itself is is pretty ingenious, especially given the time. I can't obviously, I can't speak for the um, the actual gameplay, but it looks intriguing. Yeah, I've never seen this before.
0: Well, I know you're a miniatures guy, so I, I was
1: wondering if you might end up looking this thing up. Ah, might have to. The miniatures. It looks like the miniatures are supplied poorly painted, or perhaps they're supplied unpainted, and what we're looking at here is the work of a child uh, roughly (laughs) painting them I can't tell Uh but uh yeah, I'm gonna have to look into this more. It, this this is interesting. If I had known this existed when I was a kid, I would have, have insisted on it. So uh, I guess we should we, we can assume
0: that most listeners have probably seen Return of the Jedi. Don't it, the Sarlacc doesn't need a lot of explaining, but just to do the the very basics, we should explain what happens in the movie. So uh, the role in the plot is you remember uh, our heroes Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Chewbacca. Uh, they are sentenced to death by the gangster Jabba the Hutt. He's the big slug guy, and and uh, Jabba, Jabba the Hutt says the method of execution for these three heroes is going to be a kind of uh, alien desert version of the pirates walking of the plank, right? You know They're going to be forced yeah. to walk the plank off of this floating barge or uh, this floating boat type thing into this hole in the desert. And the droid C-3PO translates Jabba's execution order. He says, you will therefore be taken to the Dune Sea, this big desert, and cast into the pit of carcoon the nesting place of the all-powerful Sarlacc. In his belly, you will find a new definition of pain and suffering as you are slowly digested over a thousand years. And I'm not going to lie, that concept haunted me as a child. I was like, slowly digested over a thousand years, wouldn't it be over sooner than that?
1: <laughs> yeah, there's this idea that it it, it, it it extends your suffering, that it is to enter into the Sarlacc is to kind of enter into an underworld or an afterlife of pain. It's like going to hell. Yeah, yeah, a, a hell of digestion. And, and I also love how in C-3PO's translation, there's this idea, yeah, that's that's not only the Sarlacc, it is the all-powerful Sarlacc. There's this idea that it is a thing that is revered, that it almost has a divine quality to it. And certainly, as we see in the film, it's not something that is defeated. It is not something that is truly overcome. It is just avoided and escaped at best. Well,
0: it's not really the enemy, right? It's kind of the setting. It's the threat in the setting. It's kind of in the way that in most zombie movies, the zombies are not really the enemy they're more like a, a hostile environment in which the drama between the characters is set usually in a zombie movie you've got a human villain and the same is true here clearly the villain is jabba the Hutt, not the not the sarlacc and of course so it's very satisfying when uh, when leia chokes out uh jabba the hut that's like a great you know defeat of the villain scene but there's no need to kill the sarlacc it's just doing its thing in the desert
1: that's right. Yeah, there's this it it has this quality where the Sarlacc is kind of like a pet. It is kind of like a pampered pet of uh, of Jabba's, much like the Rancor is that we see earlier in the film, but it also feels like something that is greater than Jabba and certainly it's something that will will outlive Jabba. Yeah, so one
0: thing I really liked about this monster when I was a kid, Um, was something about the way that the monster was presented visually, the, the pit of carcoon, the Sarlacc. It was that the monster wasn't just in a pit the monster was the pit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so to explain this a little bit more, it's kind of like a presented visually as a biogeological hybrid, like a cave or a hole in the ground that has tentacle tongues and eats bounty hunters alive. You can't tell where the animal stops and the earth begins. And as a point of comparison, uh, I, th- I think I'd, I'd use the appeal of like the biomechanical artwork of H.R. Giger that, and how that influenced the creation of the xenomorph in the alien films the xenomorph Mm -hmm. is basically supposed to be an animal but it has tons of body features that look like parts of industrial machines it's an animal made out of tubes and hoses and hinges and pistons and I, i think i always thought the sarlacc was cool because it was like this but with geology instead of machinery uh, it's it's a mouth that is the earth. It looks like the teeth are coming out of rock or coming out of the sand. And, uh, of course, this is all predicated on the fact that I grew up watching the versions of these movies before the special edition remasters. So the version I'm used to seeing is the original, where it's just the gaping mouth that blends into the earth uh, and has these rings of inward-facing teeth and the tentacles that reach out from who knows where and grab things. Uh, when the remasters came, of course, they added a big CGI beak poking up out of the pit which sort of eliminates some of that biogeological magic i i I try these days not to be one of the guys who's just constantly shrieking about how lucas ruined things and complaining about remasters and prequels and all that but i i will say i do not like this change i think it's creepier in the original version without the cgi beak i like it when it's just the hole in the earth the cave with teeth
1: yeah, I I certainly grew up with the the unedited version as well, and so that's that's probably the the version that was that's that cemented in my mind the most. And and I used to feel I think a lot stronger about it, where I'm like, nope, original Sarlacc only. But uh, I don't know, I I can i am okay with the the redesign i just wish that the cgi would maybe get a uh, another you know a fresh coat of paint to make it look a little sleeker (laughs) but but still like i also i understand that the part of the original concept was that it would have those elements but they weren't able to make it happen because they they just didn't have the the budget or the technology to, to implement it at the time um but but i i and and I also think that the addition of the the plant like elements doesn't completely take away from what you were describing. This idea of the monster as as pit, the monster as earth. Um, there's something very primal, primordial even about about the sarlacc, and you know some people i think a lot like to criticize lucas and you know they they want to go all in on this idea that well lucas depended on all these other creative people and anything that he got right he only did accidentally but i i suspect that you know that, that he was really onto something with this idea of the sarlac um, i think there there is something intentionally primordial about it and we'll and we'll get into that as we go
0: well i i think it just it it suggests the magical thinking that uh that, that is so common in human culture, that characterizes caves and pits in the earth as a mouth. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that kind of language is extremely common.
1: Yeah. So before we get a little bit more into some mythic parallels for the Sarlacc, uh, I want to talk just a little bit more about its presumed biology and its biology as presented uh, in canon and also just a little interpretation on our part. So... Obviously, the vast majority of the sarlacc's bulk is hidden beneath the sand, uh, leaving only its spiked and tentacled mouth exposed. Now, presumably, the sarlacc just normally you know, waits there. It doesn't move. It just waits for you know, some creature to fall into it, you know, some of the, the megafauna of Tatooine, such as the dewback or the bantha, you know, it just waits for them to wander close enough to fall in or succumb to those fast-moving, grasping tentacles. And if this, you know, seems a rare enough occurrence, we have to consider that it's it has an alleged 1000 year digestive cycle. So presumably, it has a slow enough metabolism that it doesn't need just regular feedings, it can get by on the odd uh, bantha that just falls in. And then on top of that, we have to consider that this Sarlacc might be in a, in a privileged situation as well, sustained by regular feedings from Jabba's pleasure barges, because let's face it, Jabba's the, the type of fellow that's liable to just throw people into the Sarlacc on a, a weekly or biweekly basis.
0: So we may not be observing the Sarlacc in its natural environment. This, this could be a domesticated Sarlacc of sorts.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think we have to take that into, into account. Now, um, in in terms of, like, you know, turning to the literature for, uh, you know, explanations of something like the Sarlacc, uh, that can be a bit confusing because, first of all, you know, it's presented as it is in the movie, and I think a a fair amount of mystery about it is ideal, like— for instance, C3PO doesn't turn to you and explain everything about the sarlacc. He doesn't go into a big <laughs> 10 minute monologue about it because you're supposed to do some of the work, right? It's supposed to inspire you.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, what's cool about it is that you can't see so much of it. It's a mystery, it's hidden under the earth. I think some of that would be spoiled if you got a, a better look at it or you got C3PO explaining its whole life history. As much as I would have wanted that when I was a kid, we were talking recently about like uh, children, you know, being obsessed with Canon and the stories they love and like wanting to know all the details I I mean I bet when I was like eight I would have just wished that the Star Wars movies included like Star Wars Illustrated encyclopedia pages as as like scenes throughout them but yeah it, it works better as a mystery
1: I think that's my adult mind yeah now that being said it this this sort of mystery has inspired lots of people and so you have you have a, a number of different uh, you know, expanded universe uh, treatments of the Sarlacc uh, as well as compendiums that uh, attempt to explain to some degree what the Sarlacc is. And you're going to deal with, you know, conflicting accounts and, uh, and and so forth if you start looking at all of those. But uh, I, I do want to touch on some ideas that were presented in a relatively new book that came out, Star Wars Alien Archive, which I've been reading with my son. Uh, it's, you know, it's basically a, you know, a monstrous compendium, a monster manual of star wars aliens and it's pretty fun it has these fa- fabulous illustrations in it and it you know doesn't have everything that shows up in the star wars films and tv shows but it has quite a bit uh, you know everything from um, uh, you know from from, from major characters and, and and major aliens to even a few things that for instance only show up in one of the ewoks movies so it's a fun collection <laughs> Naturally, of course, there's an entry on the mighty sarlacc. So I just want to touch on a few of the the key points uh, that are are made in this uh, Lucasfilm press book. First of all, it's described as, quote, terrifying carnivorous beast. And this seems to fall more on the animal side of interpretation. Some people try and, I guess, explain the sarlacc as being more of a plant, uh, and it, it is sometimes described as reproducing by spores. Uh, which leads, it unless to more of a you know fungal explanation. But of course, none of this is exactly limiting when we're ultimately talking about an alien life form that may you know easily skew the lines that we draw on Earth between uh, one kingdom and another. That's exactly right. I mean, yeah, if, if we want to be
0: real technical sticklers. The difference between plants and animals is an evolutionary division. It, you know, they are different clades. You can sort their histories differently. And, you know, animals arising on other planets might be animal-like in that they might move around quickly or something like that. Or they might be plant-like in that they are sessile and they photosynthesize or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, they, they, they would not be descended from these kingdoms. So those sortings wouldn't necessarily even make sense.
1: Yeah. Plus, oh, man, there's a whole additional uh, deep end we could get into if we tried to figure out how we consider life in the Star Wars universe, a universe where not only do we have um, life, you know, certainly arising on a plethora of different worlds, but also you have interstellar life, uh, life that is clinging to asteroids. You have panspermia and colonization taking place, uh, you, know, uh, at, you know, at various points in galactic history. There's a lot to unpack there. Deep
0: space evolution. Yeah, that's right. The minox, they they live in a vacuum. How is that possible? I, I don't think a yeah. uh, large animal would do that.
1: Yeah. Well, that'd be a fun one to come back to at some point. Uh, maybe maybe some, some people have uh, written on that topic. Um, okay. A few other points from the Alien Archive book. Uh, they, they too point out that the sarlacc of Carcoon is sustained at least in part by sacrifices and executions by the huts. Uh, but they also say that adult sarlaccs such as this one can also release an odor that attracts nearby herbivores to the pit.
0: Oh, okay. So that answer—I—that I, would answer a question that I had because I, I was thinking about how a sarlacc would normally eat if it's just this, you know, sessile pit in the desert. You know, most sessile trap predators have some way of assuring that prey will fall in like uh, sessile predators in the ocean will often try to maximize their catch by doing their best to latch on in places where the current will carry unfortunate prey animals right by them. Uh, Otherwise trap predators, like uh, some that we'll talk about in a bit, like insects that, that lay traps in the ground need to find a place where, you know, the places that are naturally trafficked by prey places where, you know, ants or beetles or whatever are going to be walking by Another option is to look more at the realm of uh, of plants, which, you know, let's say like carnivorous plants like the pitcher plant, that's not an animal, but it is a predatory organism that functions as a trap pit, and yeah, it uses smells to attract animals to it.
1: Yeah, so perhaps we might imagine that, uh, you know, say the the sarlacc releases uh, uh, some sort of odor that... Megafauna would associate with an oasis, you know, or with mm. um, with with plant life, and therefore it brings them in. It doesn't have to bring them in all the way, right? Because those tentacles will do the rest of the, of the job. The, the the shifting sand will do uh, you know the, the rest of the work. But uh, but perhaps this odor will be enough to just bring in some food.
0: That makes a lot more sense than what I had in mind. Yeah, because I was just trying to think. Okay, so it just waits until a bantha wanders in. Seems like
1: it'd be waiting a <laughs> long time. Yeah, once a millennium. The Alien Archive also points out uh, that the creature has several stomachs, which, you know, I guess makes sense given a lengthy uh, uh, digestive process. Uh, also says that its average length is of 100 meters. And uh, this is interesting. It contends that younger sarlaccs are capable of moving about to capture food, which. Um, which is an interesting detail, but I think one that uh, you brought up is, is kind of supported by um, an old Super uh, Nintendo game, right?
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I uh, I was trying to remember, don't you fight a Sarlacc in like the old Super Nintendo Super Star Wars game? Uh, so I looked up the boss fight on YouTube. Robert, did you watch it? I did. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's terrible. It doesn't capture the Sarlacc magic at all because it's not a pit. It's just like a big worm that comes up out of the ground and it moves around and spits rocks at you. You. That's not a sarlacc, but but maybe yeah, it's supposed it, to be a, a young sarlacc, a different part of its life cycle.
1: I I guess so. If we were if we were to force ourselves to uh, to take that boss fight and incorporate it into into Star Wars canon, I think that's the only way you could go. That basically we'd be looking at uh you know say a four part lifespan that goes like this. You have a spore of the sarlacc that's carried by the you know the dust storms. Then you have some sort of burrowing larva. And then you have a sandworm-esque burrowing juvenile, like we see in the Super NES game. And then that eventually, if it survives, will become a stationary adult, like we see in Return of the Jedi.
0: That is very interesting. And it's also interesting how that is going to be the exact inverse of some examples we'll look at from the the natural world in a bit, where there are things that are only a, a trap predator for part of their life cycle, but it actually comes at the beginning rather than the end.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, it, it, it's interesting it, it, that if we were to really look for some potential real-world analogs that match this basic, uh, you know, four-part uh, uh, transformation, I'd say that something like this mostly resembles the life cycles uh, that we would see in, uh, say, corals or perhaps a barnacle, both of mm. which we've discussed in depth on the show before, Um You know, the idea that this is something that is free swimming earlier in its development, but then eventually puts down roots and stays there uh, for the rest of its life.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Well, well, maybe we need to take a break, but then when we come back, we can talk about pit monster mythology and about uh, uh, pit trap predators in the natural world.
1: All right. We'll be right back. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
3: inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a beginning available wherever you get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit at and slash for details
2: rev up your thrills this summer at cedar point on the all-new top thrill 2 drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway and now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just 49 dollars Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
0: All right, we're back.
1: Now, either way you look at it, uh, I'd say the Sarlacc is a creature with, with fittingly deep mythological roots. It is, in essence, as you as you pointed out, the earth swallowing up the living with key ties to understandings and interpretations of earthquakes, sinkholes, just caves in general, but also other land based catastrophes.
0: So in preparing for this episode, I wanted to look something up, something that I've always assumed because you see it in movies, you know, the scene in the movie where there is an earthquake and the ground opens up, there's this giant fissure and everything just disappears super deep into the earth. Uh, I was like, wait a minute, does that happen in real life? Uh, basically from what I could tell most of the time, no, I think it's not in principle impossible, but generally in earthquakes, there might be, you know, fissures that form in the ground, but they don't, you don't get these deep chasms going down into the belly of the earth that, you know, swallow people and buildings hold that if that happens at all, that does not happen very often.
1: Yeah, that specifically happens in The Force Awakens. Remember when Ray is having that duel with Kylo Ren, and then the, you yeah. know, the 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 Earth shakes, and suddenly there's this this deep gulf between them, which is you know you know awesome in a film, mm-hmm. but maybe not that likely uh, in the real world.
0: Yeah, but it's interesting that
1: it, so. If this doesn't actually happen
0: in reality, or at least doesn't happen often enough for people to, you know, really see it and make a meme out of it in their culture, where does this idea come from? Cause it goes way back. The idea that the earth like cracks open and swallows people whole, right?
1: Yeah, I remember. Like, well, first of all, I probably saw it in various films growing up as well. But I specifically remember having an illustrated um, Bible stories book, and it had an illustration of uh, what I what I seem to remember being the uh, this episode from uh, the Book of Numbers in the Old Testament, uh, which uh, this is the, uh, the the King James version quote, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. Hmm. Wow. Well, d- yeah. That's basically what the earthquake movie pictures. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, I guess it's a pretty deeply set idea in in that respect. So I, I was looking around to see if I could come across any other like specific ideas of monsters or gods or you know the adventures of a hero that involve something like the sarlacc. And what I what I came across is maybe not a you know a directly related example, but but I think once I explain it, people will see a number of parallels that are pretty, pretty interesting. This is from the Mesoamerican uh, uh, mythology of the Aztecs. The Earth Goddess Tlaltecuhtli—that is T L A L T E C U H T L I—in most uh, translations. And man, she is a really interesting Earth goddess. Yeah. And scary. Yes. So for starters, she embodies a typical primordial god, goddess archetype of a divided and dismembered form whose scattered pieces constitute the world. Uh, And we we see that a lot in mythologies. Mm -hmm. But she is also monstrous, incorporating amphibian and reptile morphology. And she is also presented as an eater of the dead. So the blood of human sacrifice flows into the earth to feed her, and she is often depicted with a flint knife between her teeth and or rivers of blood flowing from her mouth. She's also seen as a boundary deity, uh, bridging the world of the living uh, to Mictlan, the world of the dead. And her role here is essentially one of, of maintaining balance. And therefore, sacrifices made to her are about keeping into the balance of the worlds together i mean she is the earth and she is also this bridge between our world and the world of the dead and when you look at uh, likenesses of her this is also interesting her likeness was often carved into the base of sculptures you know where humans could not see them once the sculpture was in place where the sculpture touched the earth so you know the, the living would not see this it, it's, it's as if it was only to be seen by her mm, interesting now, her color was red, which is, of course, the color for blood uh, associated with sacrifice. But red was also the color of sunset because at night she was said to consume the sun. We think of the, you know, the setting sun uh, seemingly to, to be consumed by the earth and then night sets in.
0: Yeah. And this is a motif we see in other mythologies from around the world. I think there are uh, the the god or the monster that eats the sun appears in Egyptian mythology, I believe, in, uh, in Hindu stories.
1: Yes. Yes, indeed. Now, if you look up... Uh, some interpretations of this uh, goddess, uh, you'll find a, at least a couple of different versions. One is more of a, uh, you know, this, more of a just a monstrous feminine form, but there's another one that's really interesting where it's kind of this squat toad-like creature with its mouth open skyward towards the eagle. And uh, and this one really makes me think of the Sarlacc because it is like a, a mouth opened wide towards the heavens. Yeah, Totally. Now, I think all this is interesting in the context of the Sarlacc because the Sarlacc, too, is presented as something that is perhaps divine and to some degree immortal, uh, an, ent- an entity that demands sacrificial victims as well, and something of a gateway between our world and a hellish underworld. Again, think back to that uh, that idea of a thousand years of digestion in the belly of the Sarlacc. Um, hmm. I remember this was explored to a wonderful effect in Uh, A short story, this was by um, an author by the name of Daniel Keyes Moran, uh, published under the name J.D. Montgomery, and it was in a 1996 short story collection called Tales from Jabba's Palace, titled A Barve Like That, The Tale of Boba (laughs) Fett. Um, and I haven't read it since junior high school, but I remember really loving it because it it kind of scratched that itch of like, oh, I must know how Boba Fett escapes from the Sarlacc. You know, you must write it for me, make it happen. Uh, and so it it succeeded in that, but it also presented uh, digestion in the Sarlacc as being this kind of sentient immortality of pain.
0: I have so many thoughts about this. Uh, so first of all, I'm, I'm thinking about all of the like sort of off-label Star Wars fiction that I read in the 90s. I, I, I didn't read as much of it as some people did, but I, I do remember I read some series of books that involved people who had three eyes and like a whole bunch of weirdness. But the other thing is, I'm sorry if this is a, is a frivolous uh, uh, side trail, but I've got to ask you, Robert, do you have an opinion on The Belch, The Sarlacc Burp?
1: Oh, uh, after uh, FET falls in,
0: yeah, doesn't FET fall in, and then and then the thing just be- it burps. It, it,
1: the, I'm not mistaken about this, right? No, no, I believe it does burp. Um- Pro-burp or anti-burp? Uh, I guess I'm, I'm pro-burp. It's, it's fun. It's funny. I was pro, there was probably a point that I'm not specifically remembering in my Star Wars fandom where I probably thought I was above it and thought uh-huh. that that belt should be edited out because I also didn't want any <laughs> indication that Fett was gone and that right. a belt should be uh, you know, his, um, uh, you know, his tombstone. But uh, nah, I, I don't really have any strong opinions about it now.
0: It seemed an ignominious end for uh, this this much beloved minor character, and uh, <laughs> I, I think I think it bothered me when I was younger. When I also thought Boba Fett was so cool, I just got to say I'm, I'm I'm about to earn us all the hate mail we're going to get for the rest of the year. I it, Boba <laughs> Fett's armor looks cool, but I don't actually get what is just like mind meltingly amazing about him to people. I just feel like he's a kind of cool
1: looking character. He's got like five lines. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it comes back to like the less, you know, right. There was yeah. mystery about really all those bounty hunters. And, um, you know, who were these guys? What, what was their deal? You know, what, what was the I, I like the one that's got like insect eyes, like a fly's head. Yeah, he's good. Or the, the reptilian one with the long arms. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I know they all have names and species. And uh, if, if I had my alien archive book in front of me, I would look them up. But, uh, but basically, it's a wonderful rogues gallery. Well, I don't have a firm position on the burp,
0: but you know what? I'll, I'll support you in your decision. So, so j- have me on board. I'm pro burp too.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's Sarlacc getting in a, a good laugh there. I, I, I think, my, I think it was well received by my son. Now, I want to talk a, a little bit more about mythology here because I feel like there's an excellent connection to be made. Um, Specifically, I'm thinking about uh, a a parallel here in Greek mythology, where, of course, we have Scylla and Charybdis, uh, the twin oceanic dangers that Odysseus must sail between the very horns of dilemma. Uh, These are magnificent monstrosities. Oh, yeah, the classics. I mean, like the ultimate sea monster. How could you beat it? Yeah, yeah. So, Charybdis, uh, I think, is the most obvious analog here. An underwater monster of varying description that above water is just seen as this massive whirlpool that threatens to swallow up any ship that comes near it. Meanwhile, Scylla is this multi-headed beast that plucks men from their ships. Now, the, the Sarlacc basically incorporates uh, elements from both of these monsters, because we have to remember that, OK, Tatooine is a desert world, but the Dune Sea has all of these oceanic qualities to it as well. And in fact, I mean, the whole encounter in Return of the Jedi is essentially this sci-fi mashup of nautical and swashbuckling tropes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing people might not realize if they're not familiar with the old Errol
0: Flynn pirate movies and stuff like that. But clearly, they're walking the plank off the skiff. This is supposed to be boats on the ocean. Jabba the Hutt is an evil pirate captain.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I mean, it makes perfect sense. The, the, the Charybdis analog here becomes very clear. Uh, and uh, I should also point out that uh, for anybody out there who uh, may be a Percy Jackson fan, in 2013, uh, the film adaptation Percy of Percy Jackson's Sea of Monsters, uh, it has a wonderful Charybdis in it. Uh, Charybdis shows up and really takes on a very Sarlaccian appearance, uh, no doubt playing upon this connection. Yeah, you attached an image. It is a very good-looking maw and it's got the inward-facing spike teeth. I like it a lot. Yeah, it's it's quite it's quite a wonderful sequence. Uh, like if you if if you just want to check it out for no other reason, check it out for that. Uh it is pretty fun as well. Uh now my son uh, and and my wife who have read the book tell me that in the book uh both Scylla and Charybdis show up, uh but in the movie we're just stuck with the whirlpool. Uh, but still, the whirlpool <laughs> is fabulous. Now, I think maybe it's time
0: to turn to the natural world and look at some animals that, uh, that even here on Earth somewhat mimic the Sarlacc. Now, there, there might be one that you out there are already thinking of because it's, it's, it's quite monstrously close, though on a much smaller scale, and that would be, of course, the ant lion.
1: Yes, uh, the ant lion is is certainly the first place that my mind goes when I think of the sarlacc, uh, because it's also something that I definitely remember encountering as a child. Getting to see the ant lions in action, uh, you know, and try and you know ultimately try and trigger them to you know try and get them to to eat the ends of sticks and whatnot, which I'm not uh-huh. recommending you do. But if if you get a chance to observe a, a, uh, an ant lion in the wild, it's worth checking out.
0: Robert, where did you encounter them? Were you in the Southwest? I know you, you, in uh, Arizona or, or wherever.
1: Uh, this I definitely remember encountering them in Tennessee. Actually, oh okay, um, yeah, like uh, this would have been um, northwestern uh, Tennessee. I remember encountering them there.
0: Maybe my mind was primed for Arizona because I just know that that's where they shot the Sarlacc scenes. Uh, I think it was near <laughs> near Yuma that they did that. But yeah, I guess the the, the range of the ant lion is much wider.
1: Yeah, I mean it needs sand or loose soil, but uh, I, I I understand it's fairly widespread. Now, I will say I am just recalling a childhood memory here. It is entirely possible that I was observing something else and thought it was an antlion or that my memory has, uh, some other, has you know, become altered one way or another. But I'm pretty sure I saw an antlion.
0: Oh, I'm not doubting you. The antlion, as we alluded to earlier when we were talking about life cycles of, of the possible Sarlacc or, or analogs in the natural world, the antlion as we know it is, is actually mainly one stage of the life of a certain insect.
1: That's right. It's the, it's the larval form of a rather nondescript uh, flying today insect, of which there are some 2,000 individual species. So in other words, the antlion, the larval form here, is, a, is highly interesting and unique, while the adult form is basically a short-lived, I mean very short-lived, flying nothing that is far less studied. <laughs> I mean, when you got a, when you got one stage of your life
0: cycle where you become a sarlacc, you're, you're just not going to get a lot of attention for the part of your life where you grow wings and fly around and land on plants.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about the the larval form first. So the larval ant lion, and I recommend looking up a picture of this. Anyone, if you if you haven't oh, yeah. seen an illustration, because it's really gnarly. Uh, it has this globular abdomen, a narrow head, and a set of vicious sickle shaped mandibles. Some species, but not all, uh, famously make their home at the bottom of a shallow pit, a shallow pit trap that they they make themselves, uh, and then uh, and they produce this by burrowing backwards in a circle, flicking loose. Uh, soil or sand out of the way as they go. And then once they're situated, only those twin mandibles remain visible poking out of the, the bottom of this sand pit.
0: Yeah so so they form this thing like you're saying by sort of digging around in a conical in a conical shape going backwards, flinging the sand out until they've created this pit that's got these sort of perfectly sloped conical sides. It's like a, you know, like a, a coffee filter sort of. Uh, and it reminds me of the episodes we did about spider web cognition because, um, you know, it's interesting to, to think about the underlying algorithms in an animal's brain, like in the spider's brain that produce the web or in the antlion's brain that enable it to make these perfect little conical pit traps – and I remember one of the things we talked about in that other episode about spider web cognition was how beautiful and complex patterns emerge in spider webs even based on extremely simple algorithms for spinning, which of course the spiders can vary to adapt to environmental conditions. And I think there are some environmental variables that, that work on ant lions as well. This might include things like the depth uh, of the sand and the grain size. I was looking at one study that said apparently ant lions and a similar predator called worm lions tend to prefer finer and deeper sand. The finer sand I'm sure uh, uh, better to, to trap you
1: with. Exactly. So how does this trapping work? Well, when ants or other small insects fall into the pit, the ant lion uh, throws up more sand, like flicks more sand uh, up towards the uh, the would-be victim in order to keep them from escaping. And then they grapple their victim at the bottom of that pit, piercing their body uh, with those mandibles and sucking out the fluids. Afterwards, the antlion flicks the, the desiccated corpse out and then resets the pit for its next meal.
0: Yeah. The, and you can look up video of this, of them literally just throwing like desiccated ant bodies out of their pit, just chucking them off to the side.
1: Yeah. Literally a dead soldier.
0: Now, I can't remember if we mentioned, but, but the antlion does have, uh, it, it does have chemicals on its side when it attacks the victim that falls down to the bottom of the pit. So its, uh, it's piercing mandibles, the, the, its pincer-type things inject a venom to the prey, but then also they've got a digestive enzyme that they use, uh, much like uh, some of the spider-feeding stuff that we've talked about, where they, they can inject the enzyme that sort of melts the guts of the prey animal and then allows some easy slurping.
1: Now, like the sarlacc, the ant-lion benefits from a really slow metabolism. The ant-lion can go months without food and, get this, does not even have an anus. It simply puts <laughs> off defecation until it assumes its mature and final form. And this is something we see in other larval forms as well um, uh, elsewhere in the animal kingdom where basically the creature is an eating machine. It's just about eating and eating, and it can, in some cases, just put off pooping until it has uh, uh, reached that final uh, morphological form that is going to obtain.
0: Yeah, let's stick on this for a second in case that just went by you. The ant lion in its larval stage does not have an anus and cannot poop. And this goes on for the entire larval stage of its life cycle, which can last for up to three years, right? No anus. You got your poop in for three years. So I guess imagine if, like, we only grew an anus and became able to defecate when we turned 18 or something. You know, the parents (laughs) talking about how, you know, you'll poop when you're older, you'll understand then.
1: Oh, man. I mean, I guess I have mixed thoughts about that, because on one hand, not having to poop is, is I mean, it's really everyone's dream. Uh, but on the other hand, being filled with an increasing amount of poop is everyone's nightmare. So uh, yeah, I guess it just comes down to that, like, you, 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 either extreme, you, you don't want either extreme. You want the, the balance of normal human pooping.
0: Now, the funny thing is, the, the, there are some skewed ways where we conceptualize animal life cycles, uh, insect life cycles and stuff, because we're talking about how when the antlion is done with its pit trap larval stage, it then matures and becomes an adult. But this adult stage lasts for a much shorter period than its larval stage does. So in a weird way, you shouldn't think of its adult phase as like its normal life, right?
1: Right yeah because uh, again you mentioned that the larval stage will live like about 3 years but the the flying adult stage lives for a mere 25 days or so. So really its adult form is just its last hurrah, you know, this is about yeah. it just uh well, I guess finally pooping but also and more <laughs> importantly reproducing. Right, yes.
0: Now, this would sort of answer the question for me that I had when we were beginning to work on this episode. I I was wondering, like, does a sarlacc poop if its whole body is under the ground? If it does poop, where does the poop go? Now, Mm -hmm. you you hypothesized, Robert, you were like, well, maybe it doesn't poop just like the antlion doesn't poop. But the antlion's got to poop eventually. It's got a next stage of its life cycle. And as far as we know, the sarlacc does not. It's not going to eventually grow wings, grow an anus, and then fly off somewhere to poop everything that has accumulated over the thousands of years. So what's going on with the Sarlacc?
1: Hmm. Well, it does make me think it could, this is just me, uh, you know, spitballing here, but perhaps if there is anything it cannot digest, maybe it spits it back out, kind of like an owl will do, you know, with something that it, uh, it, you know, that it has swallowed, you know, the various uh, bones and whatnot. Or perhaps there is this just like terminal digestion going on inside the uh, the sarlacc, you know, it's just digesting and digesting, and at the end of this, there's just nothing. Like maybe it's just that efficient.
0: I can see that, but I also like the idea of the the two way digestive system. There are organisms like that that live in the ocean mainly, like uh, the hydra. I believe has a has a two way digestive system where it basically uh, eats and poops through the same opening.
1: That's right. Yeah, I think we went into that on our um, episode about the evolution of the anus. Um, so yeah, there are there are various models for this that we see throughout uh, uh, the evolution of life on Earth that could be uh, you know used to explain it. Another way of looking at it would be something down there under the ground is pooping for the sarlacc, but we don't really know what sort <laughs> of underground environment it is pooping into. Like there could be a pretty rich. Under, underground world on Tatooine, right? I mean, there could uh-huh. be uh, you know, organisms that depend on the poop of the Sarlacc uh, for food or, um, or for shelter in the same way that the poop of, of, uh, of large you know, megafauna are essential to the life cycles of organisms here on the surface of Earth. Here's one for you. Here's, a, here's
0: my hypothesis, okay? The sarlacc secretes an acidic compound that slowly over time dissolves the bedrock, it dissolves the sedimentary rock down below where it is resting in the ground, and forms a, a karst cavity in the ground. Basically creates its own poop cave and then poops into the cave.
1: Oh. What do you think? I like it. I like it. Uh, you could have a whole, uh, you know, a whole aspect of Tatooine society where like Jawas are out there trying to dig down to get those poop reserves from the Sarlaccs, you know, like uh, especially if it's like ancient poop reserves of the Sarlacc, it's aged and uh, you know, highly <laughs> valuable for something or another, I'm sure. Uh uh-huh. Oh, I've got it. The most sought after uh, fertilizer in the universe.
0: Oh, nice. Yes. The poop must flow.
1: Yes. <laughs> now, uh, I mentioned earlier that not all ant lions um, are are going to be these these uh, these pit digging um, trap predators. Uh, you also have some that uh, that that have other modes of uh, of existence, and we see this also with owl flies which are uh, an organism that look very similar as larvae and also live as ambush predators in the soil. Uh, They look, again, a lot like antlions, uh, but while it seems like they have been known to obscure their lower bodies with sand and debris, uh, the owlfly larvae don't seem to engage in the sort of robust pit-based and stationary ambush tactics that we see with those most notable species of antlions.
0: Now, I mentioned earlier that there is a very similar pit trap predator, which has a hunting strategy almost identical to that of the antlion. And this is a winged insect family called vermilionidae, known as the uh, the worm lions. I, I think this might actually be an even closer parallel to the uh, sarlacc because it is a striking worm. And in this way, it kind of resembles the tentacles of the carcoon, uh, of the sarlacc, of the pit of carcoon. So despite how similar their pit trap strategies are. I was reading that, interestingly, worm lions are not closely related to ant lions. This appears to be uh, another interesting example of convergent evolution, where in totally different ways, uh, different organisms have discovered basically the same way to, to make a living. And in this case, it's digging these conical pit traps in the sand. Uh, Another thing I was wondering is, like, why do the conical pits look so similar if the hunters are not closely related? Wouldn't the pits be kind of more different for these different animals? Apparently, it has to do with math, sort of like the the geometry of how sediments lay at an angle. Uh, The angles Mm. of the pit slopes are determined by what's known as the angle of repose, which is the steepest angle at which a sloping surface uh, formed of a loose material is stable. Interesting. So you'll see that kind of like on the edges of mountains where there's sediment sliding down, it will settle into a certain angle that is stable. If it gets any steeper than that, it'll start to collapse in an avalanche will form.
1: Yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, I should also add that everyone should definitely look up a picture of the, the worm lion because it is very, very cool looking. It It has... I think you mentioned uh, like tentacle-like uh, protrusions around its head. Uh, like the image I'm looking at here looks like four of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, and that its body just itself looks like a tentacle. It is the, the organism, but like when it's wrapping around an ant or beetle or something that's falling into the trap, uh, it looks kind of like a sarlacc tentacle.
1: Yeah, like it's segmented, but but appears far more prehensile than, you know, something like a normal earthworm. But there is another
0: organism that's parallel to the sarlacc in some ways I think we should definitely talk about, and that is the predatory polychaete worm known as uh, Eunice aphroditois.
1: Yes, uh, also known as a sand striker, uh, and it has some other names I'm not going to mention here on the show yeah. but uh, that have been uh, informally applied to it, but it's essentially a rainbow-colored marine death worm, and it buries itself in the sand ready to strike at passing prey. They can reach lengths of nearly 9.8 feeters or 2.99 meters, but most of its segmented body remains coiled in the sand. It has an array of five antennae to help it sense prey, a feature that I think is reminiscent of, uh, of you know this idea that the sarlacc might have a root-like systems of system of feelers, spines and tentacles, which you see in some of these illustrations that uh, try to get to the heart of the sarlacc. Uh, but uh, the the sand striker here it strikes with incredible speed. Uh, whipping out its mandible studded pharynx to capture prey.
0: Yeah, I, I think let's dwell on this just a little bit more because this might have gone past really fast. This is a predatory worm, buries in the sand, attacks, and it grows to like 10 feet long. This is a 10 foot long yeah. or you know three meter worm. Uh, that preys on fish and other animals in the sea. So it'll just have its little head poking out. But if you were to keep pulling this worm up out of the ground, you could end up with like the magician's scarf situation where it just like, keeps coming out as 10 feet long. Uh, I was reading that sometimes it's, its pincer attack is so powerful that it chops prey fish in half. Uh, And and I was reading a a Scientific American blog post from from 2012 by a writer named Becky Crew about these uh, animals, and and she drew my attention to this one story uh, about how back in 2009 at a marine aquarium in a town called uh, Newquay in in England, uh, aquarium keepers noticed that in this one tank, the coral on display and some of the fish and stuff – kept accumulating weird damage. It was as if something inside the tank was like chopping parts of the coral formation off and killing the animals, and there was no obvious culprit in the tank. So they had to like remove rocks and coral and plants from this tank one at a time to find out what was causing the attacks. And a uh, curator named Matt Slater was quoted in the Daily Mail at the time talking about what happened. He said, quote, something was guzzling our reef, but we had no idea what. We also found an injured tang fish. So we laid traps, but they got ripped apart in the night. That worm must have obliterated the traps. The bait was full of hooks, which he must have just digested. Uh, So I I don't know if that sounds kind of hard to believe, but if that's true. It would kind of mirror the uh, the Sarlacc digestion thing. But in any case, like it does seem to be the case that they had one of these worms, uh, w- one of these worms burrowed down in the bottom of the tank. So the, the workers discovered that there was a stowaway Sarlacc, like this predatory burrowing sea worm was hiding down in the sediment at the bottom, and it had probably snuck in among the coral that were transplanted into the, transplanted into the tank years before and had just grown there in hiding ever since. Wow. But this also made me think so this worm is fast, powerful, venomous, mostly hidden down in the ground or down in the sediment. How can prey animals defend themselves? Well, actually I, I found an interesting article about this where there is one strategy that's been uncovered, and it was published in scientific reports in twenty sixteen. It was by Jose Lachot and Daniel Hogg uh Walker Nagel called novel mobbing strategies on a fish population against a sessile annelid predator and basically the authors here describe this weird thing where these fish uh, a type of uh, bream called Scolopsis affinis they would uh, where like one fish would find one of these worms, would be near it and discover it was there, and would start spitting jets of water toward the worm, and then other fish would join in. These prey fish would join in this mobbing behavior, where they would all gather around and start spitting these jets of water toward the worm, which apparently caused the worm to retract down into the sediment. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly what's going on there. I mean, uh, so obviously this is some kind of group defensive behavior against a predator when the predator's location is discovered. But it makes me wonder if anything similar could go on with the sarlacc, or would it even need to? Like, would you need to have banthas like spitting jets of air at a sarlacc, or something, or could they just stay away from it?
1: Yeah, I guess that's the thing about a, a land-based scenario versus uh, the marine scenario is that uh, on, on the land, once unless you were a you know a uh, flying creature. By the time you got close enough to the Sarlacc to really be in danger, to really need to spit at it, it's probably too late.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think part of this this behavior, though, might just be not necessarily – in like harming the worm or something, but in alerting the other conspecifics to its location. So you can imagine something like that for trap predators too. I mean, I would, I don't know of any evidence like this, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are some types of ants or other uh, prey insects of the antlion that have some kind of group uh, defense strategy where when one species identifies an antlion pit, it can kind of like, you know, sound the alarm and alert the others to 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 what's happening there. I don't know of any evidence of that, but I would not be surprised to find out something like that.
1: Yeah, so I you know, I think maybe the the, the Banthas might have uh, some sort of uh, um <laughs> uh, some sort of a strategy to deal with that. Now, um, ultimately, the sea is home to other bottom-dwelling ambush predators as well, more than we could conceivably list in, the, in the, uh, the episode here. But you have things like the devil scorpion fish and the wart-eye stargazer. And if you watch enough um, uh, you know, um, underwater documentaries, you'll see some of these bizarre and wondrous creatures.
0: All right. We need to take another break, but we'll be right back to discuss digestion for a thousand years. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay
3: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details.
0: All right, we're back. Okay, so I think we need to finish up today by talking about the idea of the sarlacc's really slow digestion. Remember, C3PO says that uh, when you fall into the all powerful sarlacc, again, I'm not, maybe things, this can come up again. I'm not quite sure why the sarlacc is all powerful. It seems uh, relatively powerful within its own mouth and the range right around there, but beyond, it, its powers rapidly diminish. Um, <laughs> uh, I. <laughs> Uh, But C-3PO says, in there, uh, in the belly, you will find a new definition of pain and suffering as you're slowly digested over a thousand years. Now, uh, we've already discussed the slow metabolism uh, of the eating machine, the ant lion. But I want to look at another emblem of slow digestion, this time a mammal. I think we should look at the sloth.
1: Oh, yes, the sloth.
0: Now, there are a lot of ways, actually, that sloths have been observed to be generally slow, right? The name, Their English name is not a coincidence. Uh, and this this slowness does extend to not just to their movements through the trees, you know, if you watch them climb something, they tend to be very slow moving creatures, but their slowness extends down to the chemical, the biochemical level within their bodies. Uh, I was looking at a study by uh, Jonathan N. Pauly, M. Zachariah Peary, Emily D. Fountain, and William H. Karasov called Arboreal Folivores Limit Their Energetic Output All the Way to Slothfulness in the American Naturalist in 2016. And the authors here are trying to explore uh, possible reasons that animals they call arboreal folivores, animals that uh, eat eat tree leaves, hang out in the trees, eat, eat leaves from trees, why they are relatively rare compared to some other types of animals and do not display as much adaptive radiation as some other animals. And adaptive radiation here means uh, you know, diversifying of the species into different ecological niches, basically, like evolving into many different types and variations to fill ecological niches. You don't see a lot of this with animals like sloths. And so they point out that, you know, like, Mature tree leaves, the the dietary, the main diet source of these animals like sloths, and there are other animals like this too, pandas, koalas, and so forth. Mature tree mm-hmm. leaves are not a very high-quality food. They tend to be tough and woody. Often they've got some kind of poisons or tannins or some kind of unpleasant chemical in them. It's generally really difficult to live by eating, digesting, and extracting energy from mature tree leaves, but sloths do it. So maybe the energy constraints on these animals have somehow controlled their spread and evolution. So the authors here wanted to measure the metabolic rates of sloths in Costa Rica. And they write, quote, "...we quantified the field metabolic rate, or FMR, movement and body temperature for syntopic two- and three-toed sloths, extreme arboreal folivores that differ in their degree of specialization." Both species expended little energy, but three-toed sloths possess the lowest FMR recorded for any mammal. And so the three-toed sloth lives on a, on a field metabolic rate of 162 kilojoules per day per kilogram of body weight. Now, that number alone might not mean much to you, but comparing it to other animals – uh, it's way lower than, say, the howler monkey, who, uh, who has a, a field metabolic rate of 583 kilojoules per day per kilogram of body weight. It's lower than koalas at 410. Even the giant panda is more at 185. The, the three-toed sloth is the lowest ever measured uh, wow. at, at 162 kilojoules per day per kilogram. And so in a way, it is a profound evolutionary experiment in slowing everything down and this is historically in in a kind of funny and interesting way led some thinkers to view sloths as as some kind of like like that there's a problem with their existence that there's something wrong mm. with them like uh the count de buffon uh you know george louis leclerc uh the Count de buffon who we talked about in our uh, age of the earth episode because he did some experiments trying to uh trying to determine the age of the earth based on I, I believe his idea had to do with like how long it would take the earth to cool to its current temperature but he wrote this huge you know, multi-volume natural history work during his life where he tried to become you know the 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 18th century uh, uh, Pliny the Elder, you know, to catalog all of the, the stuff in the world and tell you all about it. And his section on sloths is is kind of hilarious. Are, are you ready for this, Robert?
1: Yeah, let's, let's bring it on.
0: Okay. So he says <laughs> – these animals have neither incisive nor canine teeth. Their eyes are dull and almost concealed with hair. Their mouths are wide and their lips thick and heavy. Their fur is coarse and looks like dried grass. Their thighs seem almost disjointed from the haunches. Their legs very short and badly shaped. They have no soles to their feet, nor toes separately movable, but only two or three claws excessively long and crooked downwards, which move together and are only useful to the animal in climbing, slowness, stupidity, and even habitual pain (laughs) result from its uncouth conformation. They have no arms either to attack or defend themselves, nor are they furnished with any means of security as they can neither scratch up the earth nor seek for safety by flight, but confined to a small spot of ground or to the tree under which they are brought forth, they remain prisoners in the midst of an extended space. Unable to move more than three feet in an hour they climb with difficulty and pain and their plaintive and interrupted cry they dare only utter by night after some more moralizing about how awful they are he says uh, (laughs) we have already observed that it seems as if all that could be does exist and of this the sloths appear to be a striking proof they constitute the last term of existence in the order of animals endowed with flesh and blood one more defect and they could not have existed Oh, my goodness. Now, I think this is funny because, like, in in some ways, uh, you know, uh, Buffon was considered a a very – you know, learned man of his day. But, like, just the amazing ignorance of this <laughs> is, is <laughs> just, like, given what we know about animals. Now, and Leclerc had all kinds of terrible ideas. You know, he, he endorsed scientific racism. He believed that, like, the animals of the New World were somehow inferior to the animals of the Old World. Uh, there, there's all this weird, genuine disgust in his writing when he talks about animals found in North and South America. Uh, so he had all these extremely misguided theories. Because all this stuff that he characterizes as defects with this species, I think we would probably look at and say, I don't know, given our modern evolutionary understanding, you are probably not understanding these correctly. These are probably not actually defects. These are adaptations. His his thinking falls prey to the naive version of survival of the fittest as, you know, the fittest not as in best adapted to its environment, but as like the toughest, the buffest, the biggest, sharpest teeth and so forth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um... – in his uh, his description of the sloth really it comes off like a like a diss track you know against right. uh, against the sloth it also reminds me a little bit of of Darwin's descriptions of the uh, what the marine iguanas oh yeah the iguanas of the Galap- no i mean Darwin
0: didn't normally fall into this way of thinking but mm-hmm. occasionally there was some animal he didn't like yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> but and- the 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 sloth like the the main like counter arguments Uh, in addition to to what we said here about the 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 true nature of adaptation i would also you know Put forth that first of all, sloths tend to be cute. That tends to be our interpretation of them, especially baby sloths or sloths, if you're using the the British pronunciation. But mm-hmm. but also the adults, there's a certain adorableness to them. And I have to say, when when I was uh, in Costa Rica with my family and we went on a hike uh, uh, through the forest there, and we got to see, got to glimpse a wild sloth, like where we you know had to stand there for several minutes and watch what was presumed to be a sloth, finally move and slowly confirm its its slothhood. Like that was a genuinely magical moment. Like that has to be one of one of my top interactions with wildlife ever. Like it just it truly felt like magic and time was standing still. Um, so I, you know, it's it's very difficult for me to to put my, put myself in the mindset of of sloth hating um, <laughs> worldview. I, I think
0: Buffon would think you're a sucker, but yeah, I, I think he was quite yeah. clearly wrong. Uh, like the sloths, including the extremely slow, yes, very slow, three toed sloth, are incredibly well adapted to their environments in very interesting ways. I was reading an article about this on The Conversation from 2016 by a British zoologist named Becky Cliff, who I, I believe she either currently works or has worked in a sloth sanctuary in Costa Rica. So, you know, doing a lot of hands-on work with sloths. Um, and and so she's writing about these adaptations. She says, of course, it's true that sloths are slow in pretty much every way. Uh, at the sloth sanctuary she works at in Costa Rica, they use these sloth backpacks to – Track sloth movement in the wild. And yes, it's true, they they move very slowly and they move very little. But there's a reason for this. It's not weakness, it is strategic in an evolutionary sense. Slow movement uses a lot less energy than fast movement. Uh, Remember that metabolic discovery we were talking about earlier? Three toed sloths have the slowest metabolism of any known mammal. In a weird way, they're almost like you can imagine them kind of like going through a convergent evolution thing, but across kingdoms of life. They're trying to slowly Mm -hmm. over the eons converge with plants, Uh, you know, like so to (laughs) – and to make this possible, you know, this, this low metabolic rate, of course, they move very slowly, but they also regulate their body temperature differently than most mammals do. You know, mammals have – they're warm-blooded. They have thermoregulation. they got to keep their body temperature up through internal chemical means. But sloths manage a much lower body temperature than your average mammal. They, they tend to go at around 32.7 degrees Celsius or 91 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a full like, uh, you know, seven or eight degrees lower than our average body temperature and uh, uh, cliff mentions that their metabolic rate is somewhere between 40 to 74 percent of what you would expect for an animal of its body mass so they're 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 going way underweight on energy needs mm-hmm and so the question might be, well, why live like this? Why would you be so slow, have such a relatively cool body and all that? Again, it's cheap. It's mega cheap. Sloths require much less food energy than other mammals of similar size. They can eat this you know, this kind of bad food. I mean, it wouldn't be bad from their point of view, but it's low caloric density, this food like tough, mm-hmm. fibrous tree leaves, and they don't even need to eat all that much of it. Usually, if you're an animal that's subsisting on tough plant matter, you have to eat a ton of it to survive. Cliff points out that howler monkeys, who also live in the trees and eat tough leaves, they have to eat three times as much food per kilogram of body mass as the sloth does. And so requiring three times less food than something else in your niche opens up all kinds of possibilities for survival. So The sloth might not be lean and fast moving in a physical movement sense, but in a chemical sense, it is lean. It is like it, it, it has a lot to work with. It's got this wiggle room. But here's another thing we get to with sloth, uh, sloth metabolism. In a, in a way that's related to their very slow metabolism, they also digest food really slow. And this brings us back to the Sarlacc. Uh, Cliff points out research saying, "Well, so we we don't know the exact rate, uh, you know, the exact bounded rates of sloth digestion, but there are estimates that it takes food between like 157 hours." or up to 1,200 hours to pass through the sloth's digestive system. So the upper oh, end wow. of this estimate would be like 50 days. Um, you can imagine you know, having, having your food waste in your body for that long. Uh, Robert, you said before we, we came on to record today that you have actually watched video of a sloth pooping. You, you people at home, if you have not seen this, you should look it up. It's... Fair warning, it looks kind of traumatic, like there's a lot coming out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, the other interesting thing about sloths pooping is that, of course, they have to climb down to do it. Mm. Uh, They don't just poop out of the branches. They, They return to the earth to carry this out.
0: Yeah, Uh, and so uh, Cliff writes, quote, unsurprisingly, the sloth's four-chambered stomach is constantly full, and so more leaves can only be ingested when digesta leaves the stomach and enters the small intestine. Food intake and, critically, energy expenditure are likely limited by digestion rate and room in the stomach. Indeed, the abdominal contents of a sloth can account for up to 37% of their body mass. So it's digesting for days at a time, maybe you a month or more at a time digesting food, it's maybe a third of its body weight or more is the poop that it's got inside it right now. And it, you know, hasn't purged yet. You can also imagine though that like, why would it hang on this long? I I can also imagine this having to do with what you're talking about, that it has to come down to the forest floor to do it, which is inherently a vulnerable activity. So, and because it's slow moving, you might want to limit those trips down to the vulnerable position as much as possible.
1: Yeah, it's like if you live in a um, you know a walk up apartment in New York, and you prefer to um, to poop in the uh, say the Jamba Juice uh, down on the street. (laughs) I think that was the uh, the joke from Thirty Rock. Um, Your toilets broken. You can imagine well, you might limit how many times you'd go to the Jamba Juice to poop. Exactly. Yes. Uh, Yeah. You might you might wait a while.
0: (laughs) There was another interesting fact, uh, that came up in this article, by the way, that, that Cliff mentioned that I'd never heard about before. Um, so, you know, the obvious question might be, how does a sloth evade predators if it's so slow? It's not a fighter. It doesn't run. It's a hider. Uh, so the sloths have to protect themselves via camouflage. And Cliff mentions in her article, that, uh, uh, that all of the sloths major predators like jaguars, ocelots, harpy eagles are primarily visual hunters. So camouflage can actually go a long way to protect you. And uh, she points to an interesting uh, suggested symbiotic relationship with algae, with between sloths and algae that grow in the sloths fur. And this algae is apparently passed on from mother to offspring. So it is visual camouflage through inherited microbiota. Which is pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I do have to say that time that I got to to, to see, not only see but to to find. Uh, the sloth in the wild, like it wasn't pointed out by a guide. We, it was just the whole time I knew based on what the guides had told us that there might be uh, sloths in the trees. We would just have to look really hard for them and it did it took forever to see this this creature because you're just kind of constantly on the lookout for possible movement, possible lumps uh, you know in the in this you know rich canopy of trees that might be a sloth, and most of the time I was wrong or at least I was unable to confirm that what I was looking at at, at a distance was a living creature at all. So, so when it, it, really, I was more lucky than anything, I think, that I was able to, to, to zero in on this, this lump in the trees and then finally see it move and finally make out the movements of, a, of an actual sloth. So, yeah, I imagine they have a you know, tremendous advantage uh, versus predators that are doing the same thing, you know, on constant lookout for, uh, for prey amid the, uh, the tree limbs.
0: I don't know this, but I'd also guess that slower metabolism, slower movement would make you less fidgety.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they're not fidgety. Like I remember – that was another thing. It's like the the movements were were very slow and fluid and kind of – you know, far between like it wasn't it was wasn't like looking for the movement of a traditional creature, you know, or at least the kind of creatures that I tend to find myself looking for, you know, like the movements of, say, a squirrel or a or a chipmunk or a bird of some sort, you know, it's a it's it's a totally different animal.
0: Can we imagine a sarlacc evolving over over a very long period, over millions of years from some type of sloth like creature, like a formerly totally mobile creature that over time evolves to slow its metabolism and digestion down further and further and further in order to, you know, survive on maybe tough dietary material like, like plant leaves or something uh, to support this high efficiency of, you know, a slow metabolism, uh, highly efficient digestion. Uh, I wonder if there are routes like that. I mean, I have wondered before, like, One of the main things we think of as characterizing intelligent animal life is fast movement, but That doesn't, you can understand why intelligence evolves from fast movement in the history of animal life, but it doesn't have to stay that way in terms of that association, right? Like you could imagine that there could be an animal with intelligence that just keeps evolving back down to have less and less need to move its body around and kind of becomes sessile, becomes plant like. Yeah. I don't know. I mean maybe maybe millions of years in the future I'm just saying there there will be ant lions that evolved from sloths and you know you <laughs> fall into the pit and you'll one day get to be a part of their dramatic traumatic pooping.
1: <laughs> I like that. Yeah, the idea of a, a far future sessile sloth all right. So there you have it. Uh, did we expose all of the secrets of the Sarlacc? Uh, no, we did not. The Sarlacc uh, retains its mysteries, uh, which I think is, is you know, one of the, the, the key uh, attractions uh, to the creature to begin with.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, you can't fully lift up the Sarlacc and peek at what's under it, uh, but we'll have to imagine that there is a poop cave.
1: Yeah. Or what if there's just a nonstop party in there, you know? Like, what if you had an alternate cut where Boba Fett is, is swallowed whole by the Sarlacc and then he's just dropped into this Stomach cavity that's actually just a really happening hangout, you know it's, <laughs> Everybody that's ever been eaten by it is just in there kind of chilling, you know, and it turns out the sarlacc doesn't digest people instead It has like a symbiotic relationship with, you know, other organisms, uh, you know, beneath the surface of Tatooine It's and just everything's collecting lovely. friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it gets lonely. It's an intelligent creature. It gets lonely. It needs friends, right? Well, Robert, this has been a lot of fun Yeah, this has been fun, um uh, it, it is kind of hard to believe that this is the this is I think the first Star Wars episode of stuff to blow your mind, but hey, who knows? There's a lot of a lot of stuff in the Star Wars universe. Maybe we'll maybe we'll get up the energy to do another one of the one of these uh, one day. I'm game. In the meantime, obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. We know we have a lot of Star Wars fans, general science fiction fans, monster fans uh, out there uh, amid our listeners. And, yeah, we would love to hear your feedback on this episode, on the Sarlacc itself, your memories and interpretations of the Sarlacc. And, indeed, if you think there's a strong candidate for a future episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind related to Star Wars or any other work of uh, fiction, science fiction, uh, et cetera, let us know. Um, We'll tell you how to get in touch with us here in a second. But if you just want to support the show, best thing you can do is rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get this podcast. Huge thanks,
0: as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Thank you.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms visit visible.com
2: rev up your thrills this summer at cedar point on the all-new top thrill 2 drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway and now for a limited time get more cedar point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99